pain and problems is a very real thing. Um, I think we need to be honest when we're dealing with our own lives or maybe we're relating to somebody else to realize that, you know, people's, people's pain, it's not a perceived thing. You know, people are struggling and hurting and sometimes things are really overwhelming. Maybe it's some traumatic thing has happened in somebody's past uh, that's just been plaguing them and been a difficulty their whole life long. And a lot of times there are people walking around who've had traumatic things happen to them in their home lives, in their past, that honestly nobody in the world is even aware of. Maybe it was some abuse or you know something traumatic that happened when they were younger, or maybe they're dealing with something presently. And those things in any person's life can sometimes tend to drive us to a place that's really dark and can get really lonely, where we begin to isolate, even if not isolating socially, but kind of mentally and, and you know psychologically, people start to isolate and to pull back and to shut down and fall into you know just feelings of loneliness and depression. And it's amazing how people can really uphold an image, would you agree, outwardly as if everything's okay and everything's fine. You know, we talked about just a minute ago of even you know people that we know who are a part of the church or maybe we were friends with and uh, maybe you've experienced before somebody taking their own life and you're kind of baffled like i mean how could that be possible of all people that you know that person they they seem so okay or they seem so happy and it's almost kind of kind of shocking but you know it's possible even obviously at a very very young age and we'll talk about this in a minute statistically to become so emotionally distraught inside and to begin to battle so bad with things like depression and anxiety and guilt and regret maybe for things in your life that you've done or maybe it's rejection or fear or loneliness or abandonment, emptiness. You, you take your pick there and all those things can kind of lead either in a combination or even just one of them if it's really becoming a difficulty in our life, maybe just severe depression, all those things can contribute to a real sense of utter hopelessness where a human being can really begin to feel completely despondent and like there's absolutely no hope whatsoever. In fact, I want you to listen to some actual words of a man uh, that was dealing with really painful and hard experiences. This, these are his actual words. He says, why didn't I die at birth? Why should life be given to the weary and to those in misery? They long for death and it won't come. They search for death and it's a blessed relief when they finally die. Why is life given to those with no future, those destined by God to live in distress? What I have always feared has happened to me and what I dreaded has come to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Instead, only trouble comes. Now, here's the interesting thing. Do you know where those words come from? The Bible. Those are the words of Job, who the Bible says God was bragging about what a godly and a righteous man he was. But yet Job, at a time in his life when he was under such distress and anguish and difficulty and just tragedies happening in his life, came to that place where he said those words. And I'll tell you what, I'm thankful that God records that human emotion and that human struggle within, that God actually records that in his word for us to see. Because the reality is for any person subjected to hard times and circumstantial difficulties, it is possible through inward hurt, again, depression, hopelessness, to actually begin to feel like, honestly, like your life is spiraling downward and sometimes literally like your life is just completely going out of control. 
And I think when you begin to feel like sometimes your life going out of control, that's when it's a very common temptation for people, when they feel like their life is just going out of control, spiraling downward, to sometimes fall prey to the temptation to thinking that ending your life is the only way to take control. And the way to regain control when it's all going out of control is the only option is just to take your life to put an end to things so you can sort of regain this out of control experience. And I know that that's true because studies and statistics even prove that. I want to read to you some statistics because, again, statistically, the suicide rate is climbing among teenagers today. Let me read you a few statistics. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people between ages 15 to 24 years old. Some studies say even as young as 10 years old to 24 years old. So among those 10 years old to 24 or at least 15 to 24, the number two cause of death is people taking their own life, is suicide. I mean, that's a pretty profound thing to think about. It's ranked the second leading cause of death among college students in the United States of America. Uh, a report published by the Centers for Disease Control indicates that in the United States of America, an average of 105 people a day die from committing suicide. That's every 13 minutes somebody in the United States takes their life. I mean, it shows you how prevalent of an issue it is. For teenagers and young adults, suicide accounts for 20% of all teenagers and young adults that die. So whenever a teenager dies, a young adult dies, one out of every five times, it wasn't because of a car accident or illness, it was because one out of every five times a young person chose to take their life. In the United States of America, during the course of a year, it was estimated that 8.3 million people reported having suicidal thoughts. That's a lot of people contemplating in the course of a year, 8.3 million people taking their own life. And I think we should envision suicide almost kind of like a brutal thief that wants to rob people's lives, that wants to take people hostage and convince them to kill themselves. And I think the question then becomes is how then do you fight against or defeat kind of this you know, internal terroristic attack that happens inside when a person begins to have suicidal tendencies. And uh, I don't think ignoring the issue is going to solve it. That just delays facing it. And whenever you ignore something, it just gets worse. And it just resurfaces until it then takes its next victim. So I want to suggest, and that's why I kind of gave you that note thing, there are three different things that can kind of fight against or defeat maybe kind of that ambush of suicidal thoughts and tendencies because 8.3 million people every year are saying they're having suicidal thoughts and tendencies. So what are some ways to fight against that ambush of those suicidal thoughts? The first thing I put in your notes there, number one, we can look at it together, is to realize and remember that you're not alone when you're struggling in life. To realize and remember you're not alone when you struggle in life. So as it pertains to internal pain and hard circumstances, struggles with your thoughts and feelings, whether you're just struggling a little bit, or whether you're struggling like that person who's struggling really bad that feels like life is out of control and having thoughts that you just want to end it and escape because you want some kind of a relief, I think it's important to understand that's not something that you should ever be ashamed about. It's not something that means that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're abnormal. And it doesn't mean that you're a failure just because you're struggling at times with emotions. The reality is that's an indication you're quite normal. Because the truth of the matter is everybody struggles. 
It doesn't matter if you're 10 or you're 15 or if you're 25 or when you're 55. Bottom line is life's hard. If you haven't noticed yet, it, it's really hard. This is a fallen world filled with sinful people and all types of problems. So we are then constantly exposed to experiences of things like pain and hardship. I mean, you're going to be constantly exposed to disappointment and difficulty and trials and challenges. And it's impossible to be exposed to all those kind of things and not at times start to struggle. It's just not realistic. We're being naive to think that there are not going to be times when we're going to struggle when we're exposed to hardships all the time and even become a bit unstable in our thoughts and feelings and feel sincerely just totally overwhelmed. I put in your notes there the scripture Psalm 69 where the psalmist declares this, For the waters come up to my neck, I sink in deep mire. What's he saying there? He's saying, I feel like drowning. I feel like I'm drowning in other words. You know, maybe we think like that sometimes. I, just, I literally feel like I'm drowning right now. I, I feel like that I'm sinking in quicksand and I can't get back out. Look at the other scripture there. This is one of the godliest men in history. Paul the Apostle said these words, Second Corinthians 1. He said, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. The idea is we had lost all confidence and hope in living. Indeed, our hearts, in them we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Another translation renders that same thing. There in that translation, we were crushed and completely overwhelmed, and we thought that we would never live through it. Now, I think we have to be honest in some way, if you were real, can't you relate to some of those experiences sometimes? To some of those very thoughts and statements and feelings that Paul expresses there in those words of his own mouth. And again, this was a very godly man. And I'll tell you this, I really appreciate that Paul didn't feel ashamed to hide his struggle inside, but he actually penned it. It's recorded forever in scripture, and he actually communicated to those he was writing to. He said, look, I don't want you to be uninformed. This is how we felt sometimes. This is the way we felt, totally overwhelmed, distressed, in despair. And he didn't isolate himself and retreat to that lonely place, but he understood and accepted. I'm just like every other person, and I struggle too. And Paul here, I think, liberated his own inner person from that incarceration of the soul because he didn't retreat into silence, but he articulated the very fact that he was struggling. Realize, as I said, it's actually very normal to at times become discouraged and get depressed, and sometimes the coping process... In this world, as we all go through difficult things that we're exposed to, it can really get quite unbearable sometimes. There are some things that you're going to go through, or maybe you already have, that it's going to feel like it is beyond your ability to endure. And uh, maybe that's different for each person, but the struggle is universal. And even the struggle at times to have thoughts like maybe it would just be easier to end my life. Maybe it would just be better to just have an escape rather than have to deal with living with what I'm living with and continuing to try and work through this. At least if I kill myself, there's instant relief. Uh, there's an escape hatch. I don't have to cope with this or figure out how to handle it. And some people think then the world will be better without me or nobody would miss me. And these thoughts can sometimes start to flood into people's mind, these suicidal ideas. In fact, 
I put in your notes for you to see that even the Bible is not silent about people who were driven to committing suicide. Because you find in the Bible that God doesn't cover up occasions. He could hide it to try and make life look a lot neater than what it really is. But instead, God actually records multiple occasions where people not only struggled, but sometimes fell prey to making the mistake of taking their own lives and that wrong decision. And I think those examples are probably recorded to help us identify what contributed to their paths. Uh, maybe to be able to look at them to help us understand what was going on and how we can avoid some of the same potential tragedy in our own lives. For example, King Saul is the first person that's recorded in 1 Samuel 31 that committed suicide. It says he took a sword and he fell on it. And again, if you know anything about King Saul's life, keep in mind, here was a guy, he had power, he had position, he had wealth. I mean, this was somebody the Bible records had natural talent and charisma. He was a very gifted man, but he started to also get very self-absorbed. He started rejecting God. He started getting involved in uh, some unhealthy practices. He started making some poor choices. And as a result of that, when you follow Saul's life, his world starts to fall apart at the seams. And as his world starts to fall apart at the seams, though he was trying to hold up this image outwardly, he starts to become very insecure. He starts to get paranoid. He starts having major bouts of depression in his own life. People start pulling away from Saul relationally. And as a result, ultimately, in his loneliness and his regrets and all those things, in a weakened state, he succumbs to the thoughts of just taking his own life and falls upon a sword and, and commits suicide. In that same chapter, we then read of his armor bearer. It says, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. I found that interesting. Here's the first suicide. And then what's recorded in the same chapter is Saul's armor bearer also commits suicide it seems in direct relationship to Saul's suicide. We know nothing about this armor bearer, what was going on in his life. But what we do see is that somehow experiencing Saul's death and experiencing Saul taking his own life triggered in this man a sense of hopelessness of, well, if he copped out, I might as well just cop out too. I mean, if, if he killed himself, then what's the sense of me living on afterwards? And, you know, boy, it's an interesting thing to consider how sometimes the suicide or the death of someone else can have a very detrimental effect upon another person who begins to then sort of see that as, well, if, if they did that, I can't cope with that, or if they had the courage to do that, then why should I keep struggling and trying if they took that out? Then maybe I ought to just do the same thing. A third person we see is a guy named Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, and of him it says he went to his own house and hung himself. Now, Ahithophel is an interesting figure because Ahithophel was somebody who was dealing with all the hard things that accompany the breakdown and the fracturing of a family. It's referring to the Davidic family, and the family of David was just all fractured and a mess, and everybody was just betraying and forsaking one another. And Ahithophel was caught up and exposed to all that rejection and pain that goes along with fractured families and broken relationships, and he started to get sort of brushed aside himself. And ultimately, the experience of all that family pain and fracturing of relationships became too overwhelming, and ultimately he sought escape, and it says that he went and he hung himself. Another suicide recorded there is 1 Kings 16, 
was a man named Zimri. And this man, Zimri, commits suicide, we see in the Bible, because he had made some really poor choices. And he knew there were severe consequences that were going to come upon his life. So rather than try and face the consequences or figure out, well, yeah, I know problems are coming because I made some bad choices and I need to figure out how to handle this. Instead, he just overreacted and he took the escape route of killing himself. And sometimes people make some poor choices and then they know some severe consequences are coming and the weight of that and the fear of that and the anxiety and the pressure of those things can cause a person, rather than wanting to face the consequences and figure things out, to just overreact and to end their own lives. And then, of course, the one suicide recorded in the New Testament, most of us know him rather well, Judas Iscariot hung himself. And what did Judas Iscariot's kind of pathway up to that point to? Well, Judas lived a double life. He was somebody who, no doubt above anybody, pretended before everybody else publicly that he was one thing, when in the reality, in the privacy of his own heart and in his personal life, he was a completely different human being. And he gave this incredible image outwardly, but he was dishonest and selfish, both with himself and everybody else. And he began to get selfish and pull back from his friends. He betrayed the Lord, betrayed those who were closest to him, and again became plagued with the guilt and the regret of those things. And then he even, at one point, was sort of cast aside as being worthless by the very people, the religious leaders, who he thought were his friends, ultimately just cast him aside as worthless. And it seems that that was the final straw when those he thought cared about him let him down the most, and the culmination of that left him thinking the only option, clearly, was to end his life. And so Judas ends up committing suicide. Again, the overwhelming symptoms in all those different recorded suicides that drove each person there wasn't the same. It was a little bit different, some of the same things, but a little bit different for everybody. But again, the universal struggle of the pain and the pressure and the problems caused those same emotions and thoughts to be the pathway for that suicidal tendency to take over and ultimately succeed in their lives. Interesting that, and I put in your notes there, how even Jesus in his earthly life as a man uh, experienced some real hard thoughts and emotions himself. It says in the Bible there that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now, here's what's interesting. I even jotted this down in, in my notes here. When you look at Jesus's life, let me read to you some of the things, lest you forget what were included in Jesus's life. Jesus experienced rejection, loneliness, family problems, loss of a parent, mistreatment, bullying, abandonment by his closest friends, physical abuse, and mental anguish and torment. So again, I appreciate that Jesus came and experienced life as a human being and experienced all those things. Why? So that he can relate to us as human beings when we go through pressures and challenges and trials in the fullest sense. Mark 14 says, Jesus began to be troubled and deeply distressed and Jesus' words, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. So again, the point I want you to realize here, that first one, is that realize and remember, you're not alone when you're struggling. Everybody struggles. Everybody struggles with emotions and thoughts and feelings and pressure, and it's nothing to be ashamed about. And isolating yourself when you struggle and when you do struggle and life will be a part of struggles that you go through, isolating yourself or detaching in those times, it only inflames the problem. 
it doesn't help the problem at all. So realize it's absolutely normal. The second main thing I want to look at together is to recognize, number two, who and what is really behind self-destructive thoughts that can and will at times enter our minds. Who and what is behind, the real person behind, those destructive thoughts that enter the mind? I put in your notes here a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, which records God's creation of man and then the devils entering into humanity and starting to have a dialogue with humanity. Of course, we know from the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, after God creates all things, it says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed into Adam, it says, the breath of life. So God's the giver of life. He gives Adam life. It's interesting that it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then the Bible says that God puts Adam in this paradise that he created for him and commands him to work the ground. It says, of every tree of the garden, what? You can freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die, Die right? Then in Genesis 3, the devil shows up for the first time in the Bible and he begins to speak. And in Genesis chapter 3, it says the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And he begins to dialogue with the woman saying, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said, we may eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Look what the serpent says to her. He says to her, you won't surely die. Now, here's what I want you to notice. And I never recognized this before, and it was very insightful for me. Bottom line, what is the devil doing through his lying, persuasive words with Eve? He's very subtly convincing her to forsake God's plan and to do something that would destroy what? Her life. God said, in the day you eat this, you'll die. The devil says, go ahead, you won't die. So in a roundabout way, the devil, in essence, is from the very beginning, that the first time he shows up in the Bible, he's trying to convince Eve, one of the first people on the planet, to do something that is self-destructive, that would sabotage and destroy her own life, and really would lead to death in her own life. In a sense, you could very honestly say that it's rather suicidal in the persuasion of the idea that he's trying to convey to her to talk her into doing this. The devil's deceiving her with a self-destructive idea. And I submit to you that has always been the case for all of human history. That there is an unseen enemy that's a lying voice persuading people to live destructively in this world with their lives. And that there's an unseen enemy that is convincing people to destroy their own lives through suicidal thoughts and feelings and tendencies that people battle with, and that's the devil himself. He manipulates human emotion. He manipulates the thoughts that people have in their minds, and he supplies destructive ideas in place of them, and he persuades people with the idea and suggestion at times of killing themselves, and all under the disguise, sadly, of what our world today just labels as it's just incurable mental illness. And everybody who takes their life, it is the result, look at secular statistics, of, of its uncurable mental illness. And all the attention is put upon, it's just uncurable mental illness that causes people to commit suicide. And the devil very subtly sits behind the scenes and does not let people see that the truth is there is also a spiritual attack that is very much a part of this reality. And it's a component 
that just flies underneath the radar. Look at the scriptures I put there for you as well. Jesus speaking about the devil and his desires. Look what Jesus, who knows the devil better than anyone else, says of him. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So what does Jesus tell us about the devil? That by nature, he's a murderer. He wants to kill people. Number two, Jesus says, what else about the devil? He's a liar, and when he lies, that's his native tongue. That's his native language, to tell lies to people, to deceive people. In John 10, Jesus said he came to give abundant life, but Satan, as the great thief, wants to rob, kill, and destroy. When you study the Gospels, in Mark chapter 5, there's a story of a man who is uh, under the influence of a bunch of demonic spirits, and it says he's actually cutting himself, and ultimately Jesus delivers him from these evil spirits that were tormenting him and those evil spirits go out of that man and does anybody remember what they go into a herd of what pigs. herd of pigs right and then what do the pigs do as soon as they become inhabited by these demons what do they do yeah they kill themselves again do you see the connection there as those those demons were influencing the man to do self-destructive things and as soon as those demons go into those pigs those pigs destroy themselves, self-destructive. Again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 22, there's a young boy under the influence of a demonic spirit, and it says he keeps throwing himself into the fire and the water, trying to destroy himself. So again, we see this pattern in the Bible where the devil and demonic forces are what are instigating and influencing self-destructive behavior in people. So again, self-destructive ideas and desires Again, even from this perspective, they run contrary, think of this very logically, they run contrary to human nature. You know, God's created us, he's the author of life, and you know, it's very obvious, the survival instinct is an extremely powerful force in a human being. You know, you see stories of people, and maybe even you know this to some extent in your life, you know, where people are in tremendous danger, or they're in incredible hardship, and the survival instinct of human beings naturally, it is so strong to fight to live and to try and do everything possible. The desire to stay alive is so strong. So when people think or do opposite of that, that contradicts the natural human nature, which is a strong desire to live. And the reason why is because we can't disregard, despite all the other symptomatic issues, and I understand there's a a whole conglomeration of things that contribute and trigger suicidal tendencies in a person. But the underlying inspiration of where the suggestion and the idea comes from is spiritual in its origin. It is the very devil who is literal and real that causes these contradictory thoughts in this lying voice because his strategy is to rob, kill, and destroy people's lives. He plants in the minds of, I believe, vulnerable people, wounded people, depressed people, people who are struggling emotionally with pain and problems, wrong suicidal feelings and thoughts. And I just say this before we move on to the, to the last item is if we were in a war and we were taking enemy fire, okay, we were a troop of soldiers and we start taking enemy fire, the most important thing to do right away beyond just take cover is to discover what? Where's the enemy fire coming from? Because if you don't discover the source of where the enemy fire is coming from, you're a sitting duck and you're going to be destroyed. 
So the important thing is you have to discover where the enemy fire is originating from. And I think that one of the most important things that we can do when it comes to this issue of suicide is to be willing to identify the origin of where the enemy fire is coming from. It's coming from the enemy of a human soul, which is the devil himself, who is implanting with mental crossfire in people's minds, adding fuel to their existing emotions and thoughts that they're struggling with, suggesting to them in their minds that suicide is the best option. Planning the idea in their desires, their feelings, that suicide is the best solution for their pain and problems. So I would say this, when a person acts upon suicidal thoughts, the saddest thing is, those aren't even their own ideas. When a person obeys the thought to kill themselves, they're acting on the lie that somebody else is telling them. I don't believe suicidal thoughts come from individuals. Those suicidal thoughts are planted and deposited there in the weakness of our own thoughts and emotions. And in a sense, if we choose to act upon a suicidal thought, we're obeying the idea of somebody else. We're obeying the wrong idea and the lie of another individual, which is the devil himself. Well, the third area I think that we want to look at together is to kind of help defeat this is it's important when all these things are happening in a person's life to respond by receiving the help that's available both from God and others. And again, I put Mark 14 in your notes there because that describes the time when Jesus was in his darkest hour. And how did Jesus handle the darkest hour of his life? Well, two basic things he did. Surrounded himself with the company and the support of a few close people, Peter, James, and John. And he said, hey, stay together with me. And he communicated with them. So what did Jesus do in a hard time? He didn't isolate himself. He surrounded himself with a few close individuals that were companions to communicate with them, to provide a support for him in one of his darkest and hard hours. And he also sought the Father in heaven's help by pleading with his Father in prayer in a way deeper than he never had before. And again, we worship Jesus as God. We follow Jesus as man in his humanity. And so Jesus in his humanity shows us how do you deal with the darkest hour in your life? You take advantage of the few people that are important and bring them around you as a support system and you cry out to God in a way like you never have before. And you plead with God for help and Jesus gives a great model for that. Again, God's the giver of life and no matter what you may think of yourself or ever feel or whatever's going on or your treatment, realize your life is not an accident. You're not here by mistake. You are alive because the author of life, God, gave you your life, uniquely created you. And in God's eyes, you have tremendous value. You're loved. You are created uniquely. And God has purposes and plans for your life. Again, Psalm 139, I put in your notes there, describes that. It says that God knit you together in your mother's womb that you're wonderfully made and all the days of your life are written and recorded by God. The idea is that your life, before it even began, God has a book. And as you live out your life because God created you and cares about you, it's like you gradually go through life and you read page after page and you discover what's on the next page and you see what's in the next chapter and it's got a really good ending. And your life has purpose. It was authored by God But because of that, since it was authored by God, that also means that your life is under the authority of God. And if God is the author of life and has the authority to give life, that would also go without saying that God holds the right to determine when your life ends. 
correct? And in the same way that we know in our conscience very clearly that it is not right to murder or take the life of someone else because that's not our right to do that, in the same way, in a sense, we cannot and should not commit the mistake of self-murder. That's not our right. It's not our right to take the role of God to choose when our life would end by our own determination. It's not our right before our Creator. God's determined the start of our life, and He reserves alone the right and the authority of when our life comes to an end. And that's an important thing to remember. To override God's authority and commit suicide is always a bad choice. It's the wrong solution to a problem that you may be dealing with. It never solves the problem. It only creates more pain and problems. It horribly punishes everyone else that's connected to you, friends and family who on top of dealing with grief and have to deal with the guilt and the confusion and trying to work through the anger and all the additional emotions that come with a suicide rather than just a death from a natural cause. And again, suffering does not mean in your life that everything's wrong. Sometimes we suffer in life and we think that suffering is something that we should escape from because something's wrong. When the reality is, suffering can have a real purpose or meaning in your life as it works itself out in the process. For example, would you not agree that some people who you know, maybe who suffered through a whole lot, they have some real depth in their character. Some people who maybe went through really hard, painful things, they become very compassionate people. And some people who go through really difficult experiences, horrific experience, they have a way better perspective that's been cultivated about life because of the hardship and the suffering. So again, suffering is not necessarily something to always be escaped. The big question I think that everybody has to resolve really is what does it mean for me to exist? Or the bigger question perhaps is just very simply, why should I exist? And I really, really believe if a satisfactory answer is not found to that question of why should I exist, if you can't find a satisfactory answer in this life to why should I exist, then I can totally understand how suicide starts to become increasingly appealing at times. And it seems like an attractive option. Because if a person is saying, I have no purpose, life has no meaning, everything seems hopeless, why continue? Well, that's going to lead to the temptation of suicidal thoughts. If my life has no purpose, then what's the sense of continuing on? The Bible gives the answer and the reason for our existence, which is very simply to have a relationship with God. Look there in your notes, that, that other scripture I put from Acts 16. Here's a man who attempts suicide, and as a result of attempting suicide, he discovers the proper solution for his life. Acts 16, it says, The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, look what it says, and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. There's a one-line sentence of what you should say to somebody when they're about to commit suicide. Don't harm yourself. We're all here for you. We're here for you. Persuade them not to harm themselves. Assure them that there are people that are there. Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So again, the solution for that man coming to the realization for his life was that living for himself obviously had been pretty empty and meaningless, that he was ready in a moment to just take his own life. 
And it's through that that he found out, what do I got to do to be saved from this miserable condition that made him so quick to just take away his life in that moment that has no purpose and meaning? And he saw that Paul's life obviously had some meaning to it because Paul was suffering in prison and he was singing at the same time. And I think this man realized there must be meaning to life because that guy's life seems like it has meaning to it. Because that guy's suffering worse than I am and he's singing even though he's suffering more than I am. So in the midst of that, he says, what do I got to do to be saved from this miserable condition? And Paul's answer to him is, look, it's not to live for yourself. It's to realize that you need to surrender to Jesus because he can save you from yourself and all the junk that's inside of you. And he can take out of your life all the guilt and regret and pain and rejection and supply you with a higher reason to live. And you can experience his love and his peace and the things that everybody longs for in the depth of their heart. Look what Jesus promised John 16 in your notes there. Jesus said, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Again, notice the world's going to bring trouble, but Jesus says, in me you can have peace. So again, there is a purpose for life's existence. We're created for a relationship with God. There is meaning intended for your life, but that meaning is not found in living for yourself alone. And here's what I've discovered in my own life. If we're only living for ourselves alone, it's going to be very tempting at times to not want to keep living. Because if that's the only thing I'm living for, then there are times if I'm just living for myself alone, at times I'm going to be tempted to say, that's not very much to live for. Because from what I see or what I'm experiencing or how I feel or what my thoughts are saying or my perspective can see, there's not much to live for. That's going to be a temptation at times. But if you're living for a higher ideal and saying, no, I live for Jesus. I live for someone else. I live to follow the Lord. I live to walk with the Lord. Then you begin to find there's a deeper reason to live and a higher motivation to live. And the correct solution, I put this in your notes there, that last statement, the correct solution for struggling in life is never suicide or taking your life. It's surrendering your life. That's the solution. The solution is not suicide. The solution is surrender and saying, Lord, I can't do this life. Lord, take away this life. I can't, I don't have the energy to strive to do it. I can't, I can't handle it. Again, there's that solution. Look, Psalm 69, the last verse I put there for you. I think this is the solution, whether you are a Christian or whether you don't know the Lord, there is the solution. It's in one statement. When you wrestle with being overwhelmed, suicidal, in complete despair, it's to say, save me, O God, for the waters are up to my neck. Lord, I feel like I'm drowning. Save me. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we do that, God responds. Amen? Let's pray.